Hello, good people. This is Sister Julia Walsh, and you're listening to Messy Jesus Business. Welcome to The Mess. I'm here with Vincent Miller, who is the Gudorf Chair in Catholic Theology and Culture at the University of Dayton. He is the author of Consuming Religion, Christian Faith and Practice in a Consumer Culture, and editor of The Theological and Ecological Vision of Laudato Si, Everything is Connected. He lives with his family in Dayton, Ohio. He is a regular contributor to America Magazine and Commonweal Magazine. He has been interviewed in the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Atlantic Monthly, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, The Guardian, CNN, NPR, BBC, and now Messy Jesus Business. <laughs> Vincent Miller, welcome to Messy Jesus Business. Thank you so much for having me, Sister Julia. It's an honor to be here. I'm grateful that you're taking some time out of your busy teaching schedule and your scholarship to share with me your wisdom and insights, especially relating to how the gospel is a messy, messy life, and yet the Catholic Church provides, through its richness, some pathways for us to navigate that messiness. Before we get into that topic, I'd love to hear about you and and how did you end up becoming a theologian working at the University of Dayton? That's a long story. Uh, <laughs> That's all right. We got time. <laughs> I started out years ago in undergraduate as an engineer. Um, engineer, really? I was taking a, an honors course with Monsignor Charles Owens Rice at the University of St. Francis in Loretto, Pennsylvania. Mm. And he was Pittsburgh's labor priest. And uh, I was very much interested in cool technology stuff. And he just came in and really opened my eyes to how the economy worked, that the great technological innovations weren't really being used for justice, for the flourishing of all. They were being used for the wealthy and the powerful. Mm. And uh, at that time, I'm encountering the story of St. Francis and, and Dorothy Day and Peter Marin and all of that sort of just really pushed me to try to find something else. I was pretty deep in engineering at that point. I ended up with a lot of minors unrelated to what I'm doing. And I put together a, an independent major on social justice, which wasn't really the most promising career path. <laughs> I, I taught high school for a year and found out what a beautiful and challenging vocation that is and how I wasn't really suited to it at all. Went off to the University of Notre Dame to study systematic theology to try to get at the place where our Christian doctrines and beliefs meet up with the underlying questions of life. Not so much the ones that we present as the big faith questions, but the, the sort of deeper questions like what's trustworthy and where can you find safety and stability? In trying to teach high school, I found like there's this basic narrative that the most important thing we can do is take care of our individual families. And unless you do that, everything else has to be put off. And I thought systematic theology might be a place where some of those deeper stories could be challenged. Years later, I end up here. So as you explored those big questions, mm -hmm. what did you discover about the truth? I'm really attracted to the ways in which the world we live in helps us see certain things and makes other things harder to see, that helps us know certain things and hides things from us. So I did my first book on consumer culture and religion, and they're very attractive Christian ways of talking about that, right, in terms of excessive desires, right? We want too much or that we don't care about the impact of our consumption on the planet or on the people in the supply chain who are working in sweatshops to bring us our socks. Right? Yeah, yeah. And those are fairly direct 
the answerable ethical questions. We have traditions of examination of conscience that can deal with those. The problem is in, in a global market economy, we don't see those connections. Those connections are, are just fundamentally hidden from us, right? I walk into the grocery store, there's 10,000 things there. And I know the story of very, very few of them, right? Mm. From the produce that I walk through to the dairy products, to the cereal on the shelves, right? None of it's telling me where it's from. There's a story behind every single one of those. And I'm, I'm being trained to think that I don't need to know that story. I just need to know what it looks like or what the marketing campaign that brought it to my attention wants me to know. So we're formed in a world that, that offers us all of these shiny, beautiful things and tells us almost nothing about where they come from and tells us almost nothing about the relationships that they're bringing us into. So I'm really attracted to asking those questions, like what's hidden from us? And if the, the things we need to know to be responsible, loving people in the world, if, if the information we need to, to actually be responsible is hidden from us, what do we do about that? Rather than just blame people for making the wrong choices when they don't actually have the information in any easily accessible way. I love that that's actually the question that guides your scholarship, because it's a question that fascinates me too. As you described the grocery store, I'm reminded how when I, I guess I was just 20 years old, I studied abroad in South Africa and I came back mm to the United States and I was going through reverse culture shock and I went into the grocery store and I had, I suppose, some sort form of a panic attack because yeah. I had suddenly this different type of consciousness about the global impact of what was basic consumerism in the United States. It made me into a pretty awkward person, <laughs> an intense person in my early 20s because I didn't know how to enjoy things anymore and take pleasure in the other things that other ordinary 20 year olds were enjoying. Like I couldn't go into the bar and like order French fries without starting to think about what happened to the land? What happened to the potatoes? How were the farm workers treated? And my brain would just like multiply in all these questions, which makes me a rare bird. I realize <laughs> yet God's not calling us to be miserable or overwhelmed mm. or to be in a state of numbing out. So what is the the call to respond to the consciousness once we have it? Yeah, that is such an important question. I think it's worth saying that the kinds of joy that are offered to us, if they require us not to know those things, then, then maybe we should really question. If we live in a world where that's normal, right? You have to just simply shut off all those questions about the relationships with the people and the land and the creatures you're in just by getting through the day. Then God's not calling us to that either, right? That's, right. that's a violent and blinded way of being in the world, right? And, and so it is very painful to encounter the limits of that and to begin to imagine what's out there. Two things come to mind to me. One is building actual relationships that are just and loving in our lives, not just interpersonal ones, but with our consumption. And I think there's a spiritual value in that that goes beyond them simply just being ethically pure, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, we're in a community-supported agricultural relationship with a local farm, right? And so that's that's good. And you know, so we can sort of check the ethical box that this broccoli is okay, right? Mm -hmm. you know? But there's a certain rightness and joy that comes from eating that broccoli and having walked on the land where it's grown and knowing the people who grow it and knowing it's from here and this is the fruit of this earth here. 
which is really worth savoring. I'm not an unambiguous fan of the fair trade movement, but I think the fair trade movement, insofar as it brings you knowledge about what you're doing and lets you imagine those relationships in deeper and more honest ways, that it does provide a way to relax into our consumption and find a model for flourishing. Now, the flip side of that is, you know, if I have a shirt that I know is made from fair trade cotton and it's made in a union shop and it cost me a little more or the same as other shirts, right? When I go into my closet, I hear that the other shirts aren't telling, right? There's a bunch of silence for the rest of them. Mm -hmm. That's uncomfortable, but it points us to what is sometimes called the commodity veil, right? How commodities are hiding their conditions of production. As you experience in your 20s, like once you see behind the veil, it's really hard to just land at the chain store happy hour and enjoy the appetizer of the week now, right? Because you know, all these things are coming from places and it probably shouldn't be this cheap. And that disquiet there, I think is there's, there's something spiritually valuable in that, even though it is painful. Well, thanks for validating what made me into a weird young adult actually was <laughs> a fine thing. <laughs> Thanks. Appreciate that. Much of what you're talking about echoes what Pope Francis has written in Laudato Si and in the most recent apostolic exhortation, Laudate Deum. In these writings from Pope Francis, he's exploring the importance of humans as being more conscious of our interdependency with all of creation and ultimately going to a place of powerlessness and surrender to being more conscious of our relationality with the soil, with the earth, with the air, with water, and recognizing that all that God has made us sacred, that we are in a relationship. I'm a Franciscan. This is the way I view the world. It works for me. But what I'm conscious of is how we're also in a state of crisis. As you have explored in your work and your writing, The climate crisis is devastating, it's real, it's harmful, it's the rates of extinction are way too rapid. And I'm thinking too about the violence that's happening in Ukraine and Gaza right now, the -hmm. conflict between Israel and Palestine, and how this is a crisis too, when we're choosing to enter into a place of consumption, we're also exerting our power. And as we're exerting our power, then we're not surrendering and having a humility and honoring the relationality that we have to, well, not just all living things, but all of creation. So like in the midst of all this, how are we supposed to navigate from your perspective? (laughs) I don't expect you to have all the answers, but I'm wondering what you're thinking about and noticing regarding calls to action, and then ways to be with it. You opened with Laudato Si, and you invoked that notion that we were called to be part of the community of creation, and we're called to be open to the pain that we're inflicting on creation. And I think those are two sides of the same coin. As a Catholic, with our understandings of grace and goodness that exists after the fall, I think we all want community in some way, right? And that that manifests in healthy and unhealthy ways. That can manifest in getting addicted to social media, that can manifest in in Christian nationalism, that can manifest in, you know, being centered in one's own family exclusively, or it can be manifest in solidarity with those outside of our immediate circles and those who are suffering and who are dying as we speak. That desire for community is something that's built into our beings. 
It's a living natural desire that draws us out of ourselves. We can explore the positive route of that, which is into community with those who are suffering injustice, community with creation that we're damaging, right? It draws us into those relationships to heal those relationships, to sacrifice ourselves for those relationships. It also draws us into encountering that pain when we love particular places, when we attend to the damage that's happening to the world, when we attend to the excruciating violence of these conflicts, that pain is really part of being honest to our communal nature, right? We're, mm. we're fulfilling community by hurting with the pain that's out there. And I think Laudato Si really builds in both directions. It has that beautiful opening line. Our goal is not to amass information to satisfy curiosity, but rather to become painfully aware, to dare to turn what is happening to the world into our own personal suffering, and thus to discover what each of us can do about it. I think a big part of Francis's imagination is really informed by the Jesuit training of affect of the emotions. He talks about these things all the time, and you know, that's not a throwaway line there. It's not decorative. Really. He really does think that becoming painfully aware by letting it become our own personal suffering, that we actually do discover a pathway to acting and loving through that. I find this to be a clarifying spiritual practice to make sense of where we are now. So I, like most people, unwisely get up and open my email and see what's going on on the internet in the morning. And there's a world of horror in terms of environmental issues this year as it's been one of unremitting destruction, right? I remember the first day I was driving home from the dentists and coming down this hill. And I was like, you know, there's far too much haze today than it's supposed to be. And then the next day, you know, we learned about the Canadian wildfires. And then online following the sort of breakout temperatures and, and ocean surface temperature and air temperature around the world, we've been above 1.5 degrees since July in terms of global temperatures, right? So this is not the 1.5 degree limit that Paris talked about because it's only been four months, but we have spent four months above 1.5, right? You know, so it, it needs to be a decade or a three decade average to really count. But this is not where we want to be. And we are every day you open your computer and you see more evidence of this violence. About six years ago, I began to work with a, just a beautiful place in Oregon. It's called the H.J. Andrews Experimental Forest. It's a research center for the U.S. Forest Service. This is the place in the 70s where they did the research, the scientific interdisciplinary research, where they defined old growth as a kind of ecosystem. Before that, it was considered decadent forest. It was a waste of resources. There were all these rotting trees. You needed to cut it down and plant something orderly there. And they stopped and attended and discovered that this was a complex, thriving ecosystem that did all these amazing things. And so they've been doing that research since the 50s, actually there, but that research was done in the 70s. I was able to go there in 2017 and spend some time and get to know that research and really experience the great gift of being in an ecologically intact ecosystem where all the pieces are still there, right? Where the harmony is still fully flourishing, right? The voice of this place is fully alive. There are valleys there that are, you know, full of four and 600 year old giant trees that are covered with moss and they're just unspeakably beautiful places. Yeah. I was always a little suspicious of what I was doing there, right? There are a lot of theologians that go off to the woods and write beautiful things about them. You know, what am I really doing here? I'm trying to understand Laudato Si. I'm trying to understand how everything is connected. I'm trying to see what the harmony of creation might be like and got involved with the research community there that has stewarded that space and has learned so much and shared so much with the world. 
over those six years, when I first went there, they said, you know, well, we really don't have a global warming signal here yet. The forest sort of buffers the temperature, it buffers the moisture. And over the past three years, they're like, we have a signal that's hotter and it's drier. In 2020, there was a major fire right next to it that burned out an entire valley. A tenth of the Cascade Forest burnt that Labor Day weekend in 2020. And then this year, on August 5th, there was a lightning strike. They all knew it was coming. You know, it was just a matter of when. And it burnt all through August and it burnt all through September. You can only watch from a distance and imagine those unspeakably beautiful valleys that have been there for 600 years. You can see from the satellite that the fire is there and it's still burning there and imagining what might be happening. As painful as that was, there's a great honor in being connected to a place and to feel the the pain of that loss, right? The, the pain of the love for a particular place is also vulnerability to feeling the pain for the loss and to be part of a community that was in deep grief for you know two months as this burned and burned and burned. There's really no way to stop it. I mean, they go in and they try to limit it. They try to control the boundaries. They protect buildings. The hotshots don't risk their lives for stands of old growth trees. That's not something that we do. They burned for two months. The, you know, the grain gradually returned. It's mostly out now. There could be places that would smolder through next year. No one's been able to get back in there. It's too dangerous to go into the fire zone right away because of things that could fall. But even though it rains most days now, it's still seven inches behind on rain for the past 30 days, right? This is the Pacific Northwest. It's supposed to be a lot wetter. And so there's the joy of being connected to places and there's the the pain that comes with that. Mm. And that connection, I think, is very familiar in the Catholic tradition, right? This is the Paschal mystery. Yeah, I was thinking of the cross the whole time as you were describing that, right? I was just like, are you actually talking about Calvary as yeah. a place of loss and sadness and where we go with our sorrows? It sounds like people aren't able to go back in to this burnt place to see if there's new life coming yet. I'm wondering about what's regenerative and what's possible, even in the midst of the destruction. To make sense of the fires, there's sort of two ways of looking at it. One is these are forests that are born in fire. The valley with this 400-year-old trees in it, the 500-year-old trees, right? There was a big fire there 500 years ago, and that's how it got started. The difference is now that we've shifted the baseline so that the fires come much more frequently. And when things regrow, they're regrowing in very hot temperatures. I've gone back several times after the 2020 fires. It's astounding that you know within months, there's a kind of moss that grows after fires. It grows on the mineral soil when everything's burned away. And it just explodes, right? And so moss covers everything. And then there are things like fireweed that grow in. And so within you know the second year, you're up to your shoulders in new growth. Some of the trees, some of the, the maples re-sprout from their, their roots. There are beautiful things. Right after the fire, there's sort of these shocking places where there are ancient trees and the fire is so severe that the roots are just tunnels in the ground when you see the negative of the tree. But five months later, you go back and... It's just amazing. There's a Douglas fir seedling growing in that hole now. So that is all lovely, right? There is the life from death. The sort of Anthropocene heartbreak, though, is to go back a year later and see that, well, that summer was so hot that those seedlings died. And the summer was so hot that the maples are struggling to re-sprout from their roots and they're, they're withering. So we're doing these deeply destructive things, not just to places, but the entire ecosystem. You know, when it comes to the Paschal mystery, 
I think in our personal lives, in our vocational lives, we're used to the temptation to not commit, Mm -hmm. to protect ourselves from the pain. I'll be in this relationship, but I'll kind of keep my distance. I'll be your friend, but uh, you know, I'm not going to get too deeply involved in the crises you're going through. You know, we manage our exposure. It's saying no to life, right? And in, in the extreme, we say no to relationships because the risk is too great. So we know that temptation in the spiritual wisdom that we have uh, around us that's been given to us. What strikes me about consumerism and about the ecological crisis is there's the temptation to avoid the pain by seeking new shining things. But also we live in a world where it's been built so that we're detached from it. So we don't have those connections, right? It's not so much that we fail to establish them as we do in personal relationships, it's that we're isolated from these things. We don't know what's really happening. So we get a, you know, we see a tweet or a headline on the internet, but it's not something that touches us deeply because we don't have those relationships. We have to really work to go out of our way to develop those relationships rather than the kind of interpersonal way in which they're thrust upon us. So I spend a lot of time in sort of imagining what we do in that situation. It's interesting that you keep pointing back to relationship and ultimately the call to build community that we as Mm -hmm. Christians have, because... When I think about the state of the environment and consumerism and climate and even how it connects to violence, my imagination goes to a place of, well, how can I actually go live more simply, live closer to the land, be a homesteader situation, mm. right? Mm. And and I go to like, maybe I should have been Amish instead of Catholic, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right? To remove oneself and to live in a sort of society that's committed to this relationship with the land and, and living off the land and living without electricity, living more simply. That's all very, very attractive. But it's not actually the Catholic <laughs> mm. way to proceed. And mm-hmm. the Catholic way is like you describe, is not to isolate, but is to become more involved and more relational. I'm wondering mm. if you could break that open for our listeners so that they understand why that's the particularly Catholic response. The example's a little tricky because agrarian societies are actually in relationship in a way, right? And their Catholic traditions are that, and certainly medieval Catholicism in all its richness is still agrarian, but certainly not the social withdrawal. We can't fix what we're doing to the rest of creation through individual lifestyle choices, no matter how severe they are. Mm. We need to change our energy systems. We need to change our entire systems of production. And so, yeah, I think the, the way we impact those is to allow ourselves and to struggle to become conscious participants in those systems and push those systems towards honoring creation more fully, being more just for all who participate in them. And that forces us into the ugly, messy, often repulsive world of politics and social change. That is a grind. Even there, the kind of relational lesson is there. I mean, because we know this from our personal lives as well, with our interpersonal relationships with community members, with friends, with family members, they don't lend themselves to those kinds of transparency. There might be a relationship that's fixed by going off for a weekend retreat somewhere. That occasionally might work. But it's mostly done in the day-to-day grind of just learning to get along with each other. And the conflict and the frustration of it is literally how it happens, right? The friction is how it happens. So I think a lot about that word friction. And 
the kinds of options we're given and how they're appealing to us. You know, even though social media is often something that you know we, it gets this understandably bad rap of being a cesspool, right? We're exposed to all these people saying horrible things to us and other people. It also just gives us choice. The fact is it does connect me with voices that I'm interested in and lets me have these kinds of frictionless relationships with people. I can just read what they say. If, if I don't like it, I don't have to look awkward at them. I just, you know, I just, I move along. If someone really just gets on my nerves, I just get to click unfollow or block and that's fine, right? And so that frictionlessness there, I think, is teaching us unhelpful, unincarnate, Francis might use the word, Gnostic habits of relationship so that we imagine that we can have community without the grind, without the friction, without the give and take. And so as messy as politics is, as messy as advocacy is, right, the mess itself is, in some ways, the relationship is the point, which is easy enough to say. It is. Yes. And I'm so happy you're saying it. You're on the right show. <laughs> you get it. You get why I call this messy Jesus business. I mean, this is indeed the point, right? And yes, yes. I'm thinking too, like what you're describing about how ultimately real relationships are full of friction and real devotion is incarnate and it's not dismissive. There is this commitment to one another in the midst of the struggle and the tension and the grind and the challenge to constantly be advocating for the reign of God, for the better world that we believe in, the better people that we believe in, for systemic justice. And as we're doing that work, we're called to be hopeful and passionate and be people of faith and love. And that takes actually a lot of courage <laughs> in a world where we're being taught to be dismissive of one another. When I read Ladal Te Deum, paragraph number 53, he says that to see that there is nothing to hope for would be suicidal, for it would mean exposing all humanity, especially the poorest, to the worst impacts of climate change. Mm-hmm. You've already talked about how that's true. But I'm wondering, from your perspective, in the midst of the call to actually be loving and faithful and constantly advocating for what's right and true, how do we maintain the hope when what we're really feeling is grief Mm -hmm. and despair? I mean, I don't know if you want to get real with me about your own experience, but like, Mm -hmm. how do you do that both and? The passage you cited is a place where Francis is really performing a Catholic understanding of hope. And it's different than we usually use the word hope. Mm. I'm trying to write on hope now. I'm trying to. Um, (laughs) It's hard, isn't it? In social science approaches and certain philosophical approaches, hope is seen as sort of like a positive feeling that sort of gives you emotional energy to, to act towards your goal. And if you go back to Aquinas, it's very different than that. Aquinas talks about hope is a desire for a bonum futurum ardum, a difficult future good. So hope is a grind. And so that passage that you quoted from Francis, he just ended talking about COP28 coming up in the United Arab Emirates that's being held in Abu Dhabi. It's one of the world's leading petroleum producers and gas producers. People in the environmental movement and in the climate movement, their hair is on fire and they're wrestling with despair because the president of COP28 is the head of the national oil company. They're profoundly worried about what this means. And so it, it, it fascinates me that Francis invokes 
hope there, right? He's he's just laid out the inadequacy of the global multilateral international political system. He's just given a, a fairly critical review of the UN climate process since its beginning and saying that you know the Paris Agreement was great, but there are all these ways in which we've fallen short and we're running out of time. And then he comes at COP28 and he lays it all on the table. While the people who are sponsoring it, the country that's sponsoring it is interested in sustainable energy, it's still a major carbon producer and they're they're developing new projects to continue to produce carbon fuels there, right? And he says to give up hope would be suicidal. There's no sort of emotional background where, okay, within this, I can still feel like things might work out. He's laid it all on the table. Things are not working out, but we have to fight for an adequate solution. And then he goes on to say, that means we have to demand, let me get the exact passage here. Um, Jumping ahead to a few paragraphs, he gives you the second part of hope, which is hope is a particular goal you're fighting for. You're fighting for something. And so in 59, Mm -hmm. six paragraphs later, right? If there is sincere interest in making COP28 a historic event that honors and ennobles us as human beings, then one can only hope for binding forms of energy transition that meet three conditions, that they be efficient, obligatory, and readily monitored. So he lays out these very specific, very wonky policy requirements for what the UN climate process needs to produce. Hope, in the, as he performs it in Laudate Deum, it's not at all about having some rosy view that things will somehow work out. The skies are dark and threatening, and here are all the reasons we have to despair. We're not going to do that because that would be suicidal. We're going to hope and we're going to fight for these very specific policy outcomes that are going to limit emissions. And then we find out a few weeks later, he's going to COP28 mm-hmm. and he's going to push for these things. And, and again, you know, he's just a pope going to a conference of the parties meeting for the UN climate agreement. It's not like the whole world's going to snap to attention and do what he says, right? He's going to give a moving talk. It would be easy enough to despair at the uselessness of that, right? But that's what he can do, mm-hmm. right? And he's going to do that. And that's what hope is, I think. You know, If love is particular, and if particular loves bring grief and pain, hope in this tradition is always particular. In this situation of difficulty, in this situation of damage and brokenness, I'm going to try to achieve this good, and I'm going to fight for that. That sort of dogged determination is what hope means in this tradition. And all three, I, I just keep coming back to this. This seems to be a lesson that it amazes me that it keeps ricocheting through all these issues, right? They're all about particulars. They're all about particular relationships. Uh, they're not about being in a happy place and then deciding to go do something, right? It's, it's holding on to something. And isn't that the way our God works? Mm-hmm. And isn't that what Christ models for us is that we can have the broadness of the vision and then yet there's the particular relationship and the particular response to those that are in front of us that we love and we care for and we have hope in mm-hmm. and we do what we're called to do. I feel like I should have paid you a little tuition for that. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my goodness. Well, Vincent, this has been so interesting and fun to talk to you about these really important topics. What else would you like to say about the messiness of gospel living in our world today, in the midst of crisis, in the midst of much to mourn, and the complex realities of human behavior? Wow. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I just, like that. <laughs> basically, you know, what else were you hoping we didn't touch on that you want to touch on? <laughs> we talked about the particular. I mean, it, it strikes me that, you know, messiness in relationships versus the ways we imagine ourselves online, 
the, yeah. the kinds of tools we're given to imagine ourselves online. You asked me for a headshot for this uh, oh. <laughs> event, and I didn't. I didn't have one, and I I went into the photo booth on campus to get my headshot right. And my golly, there was no AI processing to make me look better. Um, so. <laughs> Great. Every blemish in Atork was was evident. Authenticity um, I, is golden. <laughs> I think we live in a world where we spend so much of our lives online, yeah, curating and presenting our best selves and our most presentable selves, and imagining sort of the perfect intervention or the perfect presentation, the messiness of actual relationships, the the encounter with the world that's broken. Those are being drained from our imagination. I think the challenge of the environmental crisis, the challenge of politics is to really embrace the messiness of it, the brokenness of it, the blemished world, and learn to love there. So are you saying that the Christian call, the Catholic way of loving, is to embrace the cross? Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, one of the things I think about the cross sometimes is how it's not just Jesus being nailed to the cross, but it's the world being nailed to Jesus. It's this holding on. It's this deeper embrace. And the nails point out connection to us and the pain of connection. And the promise as well. Mm-hmm. The potential. The possible mystery. Yeah. The, yeah. You know, that's where life is found, right? You can run away from it or you can embrace it. Yeah. Amen. Wow, Vincent, thank you so much for coming on Messy Jesus Business. What else would uh, would you like our listeners to know about how to support you and your work? And uh, do you have like a cool website or anything since we're talking about all that in <laughs> internet? <laughs> I have a highly uncurated website. Um, uh, maybe I can update it and you can send them to it. Uh, no, uh, you just Google me and find things I've written. Um, yeah. Uh, and perhaps embarrassing things I've said. Uh, it's, it's all on me. <laughs> well, I'm really grateful for your scholarship, your work, your leadership, for your voice and your guidance in this messy work of living the gospel. And I hope that someday we can meet in person and do something really hopeful together, like just go look at some trees. <laughs> yes, yes, I would like that very much. Thank you so much, Sister Julia, for having me. This has been wonderful. God bless you. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced and edited by Colin Wamskans. You can find us online at MessyJesusBusiness.com and on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Patreon. If you like what you heard, please be sure to mention our podcast to your friends and followers. And we'd love to have your support via Patreon. From the bottom of our hearts and the middle of the mess, thank you. Messy Jesus Business is produced in partnership with the Franciscan Sisters of Perpetual Adoration. You can learn more about our religious community and donate to our mission at www.fspa.org. I'm Sister Julia Walsh, and I'll catch up with you next time. Until then, peace and all good.